are listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. Hi, I'm Beck, and I'm an elder here at Oaks Church. And I'm going to be reading our teaching text for today. But before we do, I just want to, can we just take a moment of silence just to kind of center our hearts and kind of reorient back to his presence. Today's teaching text is from Isaiah 11, verses 6 through 9. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all of my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Beck. Good morning, everyone. I'm just going to scoop back here because I feel like I want to see everybody's faces as I am teaching this morning. Um, I have to tell you that this morning whenever I arrived, um, Cassie told me I was a fall dream, uh, which uh, I have to say fall is my season, autumn are my colors. Never have I been called a fall dream in my life, but I really appreciated that encouragement this morning. Where is Cassie? And you know what? I have to say, Cassie, you always, you're such an encourager, and you're such a gift to us, so thank you. <laughs> Emily just prayed for me before I get up. I love, I love this family, so I'm really grateful to be teaching this morning. My name is Gemma, if we haven't met. I'm one of the pastors around here, so I occasionally get to teach, and this week as I've been preparing to teach today, I felt like it was just really important to say that, um, you know, there may be a little bit of a step to get up onto this platform that I'm speaking on, but we come to you on level ground. I am not an expert. None of us are experts when we teach up here the things that we're talking about. We are fellow pilgrims on the journey towards Christlikeness, so please hear everything today from me as, as a fellow pilgrim and not remotely an expert. But I'm going to be teaching today on our current teaching series, The Lion and the Lamb, and we are unpacking and exploring what biblical reconciliation is. And I want to start by giving a very brief summary of where we've been, so uh, that if you haven't been here before, you will be able to track with us. I do believe um, there is like a QR code. If you have specific questions as we go through this teaching series, you can scan that, and we will get those questions and perhaps even be able to address those with you as we go through. But this teaching series is based on Isaiah 11 that Beth just read for us, 6 through 9. And in this passage, the prophet Isaiah is painting a picture of this future time when all of creation will be fully restored and reconciled. This is the new heaven and the new earth. He paints this picture of pastoral tranquility where these proverbial opposites, lambs and wolves, leopards and goats, infants and snakes are living together in harmony. And we would usually associate the lions, the wolves, the leopards with being aggressive. These are the predators in nature where the lambs the goats, the children are the weak and helpless ones by comparison, the natural food for the predators. And then this vision of Isaiah presents a picture of an idyllic situation, an idyllic existence where there is no violence or aggression of any kind. 
This vision points to a perfection of nature like that in the Garden of Eden before the fall. It speaks of God's original and ultimate plan for humanity to live together in totally nonviolent and innocent creation. It speaks of the totality of God's redeemed and recreated world. It points to a time that will come when the knowledge of God, as imparted by his spirit, will flood the earth, making it possible for the entire world to be God's own sanctuary with no separation, no barriers. There will be such intimacy and commitment to relationship to God that fellowship with him and all of his created world people will be one of ease and beauty and harmony. I mean, sign me up. I don't know how you feel about that, but I'm like, yes, because the world that we currently live in looks radically different because that day is not yet here. We live in the in-between, sometimes referred to as the nigh and the not yet. We live after the perfection of Eden that we read about in Genesis 2. We also live after the fall. We also live after the coming of the Messiah and the victory of the resurrected Christ, but before this idyllic vision of Isaiah and the perfection of recreation that we read about in Revelation 7 when Christ will fully and finally establish his kingdom on the earth. When we talk about biblical reconciliation, we are talking about a forward movement toward the former harmonious relationships of all creation. And throughout this series, we have defined biblical reconciliation as the work of the Father, established in the Son, and administered by the Spirit. And our hope is that as we as a community can be actively engaged in biblical reconciliation, that we are moving towards what is at the forefront in the heart and mind of God. Now, when we talk about lions and lambs, the reality is that all of us are both. All of us know what it is to journey with pain inflicted on us by another, whether that is intentional or unintentional, And all of us know what it is to have been the one to cause the pain to another, either intentionally or unintentionally. We have all been offended. We have all been the offender. We are all fearfully and wonderfully made in God's image, and yet we are also broken and flawed. We all need forgiveness, and we also all need to extend forgiveness. And the truth is that healing and wholeness is ultimately tied up in both being forgiven and offering forgiveness. And Henry Nowen says that essentially, we have to forgive other people for not being God. Now, what he means by that is that no one can love with a perfect, pure, steadfast, divine, unconditional love apart from God. And so we continually need to forgive ourselves and forgive others for being incapable of that kind of perfect love. So we all have work to do. We all have lion work to do, and we all have lamb work to do. Now, last week, Patrick shared what lamb work looks like, what it means to recognize when something's not right, what it looks like to name the hurt that has been done to us, to lament and grieve that hurt in God's presence and to embark on a journey of examination. This week, I wanna try and give us some biblical imagination for what lion work might look like, what it looks like for a lion to eat straw like the ox, like our passage talked about, to find new forms of sustenance. And primarily, I want us to explore this through the lens of confession and lament. 
So today, we primarily want to give our attention to the ways in which we are causing and have caused pain and hurt to those around us. Whether that be the stranger in the street who gets in our way, or someone who is radically different from us and has a different value system, or maybe the people close to us are the people who get the worst of us. This work is not easy. It requires great courage to see the reality of ourselves and the consequences of the choices that we make. So we're gonna begin with the good news. The good news is Jesus. Unlike the prophet Isaiah, who only foresaw the coming Messiah and the reconciling work he would do, we live in this in-between with the hope of the resurrected Christ, knowing that he has already defeated death and will come again to fully and finally establish his kingdom on the earth. It is the cross of Christ that makes both forgiveness and healing possible. The work of reconciliation is established in the Son. Now in Luke's gospel, Jesus tells this profoundly beautiful story of a son who inflicts great pain on his father by essentially coming to his father and declaring that he wished his father were already dead so that he could have the money that was coming to him. The father gives the son what he asked for. The son then leaves home, squanders everything he's been given on wild living, is what scripture said, indulging his passions until he finds himself in the midst of a famine. And he is totally empty and lonely and broken. He is tempted to eat the slops of the pigs that he's tending to because he's starving and destitute. And the reality of the situation brings him to his knees. He recognizes his brokenness. Scripture says he came to his senses. This is conviction. This is what Patrick talked about a few weeks ago. The starting place for the lion and lamb journey is conviction. We're defining that as the ability to recognize the brokenness that exists in the act or belief or situation or relationship in view of God's wholeness and holiness. We must begin with allowing our hearts to break for the things that break God's heart. So the prodigal son sees his situation as it is in light of God's wholeness. His heart breaks for the pain he has inflicted on others and ultimately on himself. He grieves and laments his choices. In humility, he decides to go back to the father's house. He even plans his speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Conviction, lament, confession. We see the whole process in this story. But what happens next in our story of the prodigal son? Well, scripture tells us that while the son was still a long way off, His father saw him. His father saw him. His father was watching for him, watching for his return. And he is filled with compassion and he runs, undignified running to his son and he throws his arms around him and he kisses him. And the son tries to stammer out this speech that he's been rehearsing. He tries to blurt out his lament and confession. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father interrupts him. The father interrupts his confession with compassion. He doesn't even let him ask to be a hired servant, but immediately sets the servants to work to affirm his sonship. Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. 
For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. Uh, There's a famous painting of that story by an artist called Rembrandt. It's going to be up on the screen behind me. It's called The Return of the Prodigal Son. Just take a moment to just have a little look at that and see what you see. I wonder when you look at this image, do you see a father who is angry and aloof and standing in judgment and condemnation? Or do you see a father who is tender and meek and embraces his son with compassion? You see, this story is a picture of God's desire for reconciliation and how God responds to us when we move towards healing and wholeness through conviction and lament and confession. Today, we're gonna do some self-examination. We're gonna invite the Spirit of God to search us and help us to name the ways in which we have sinned against heaven and against others. And this can be heavy work. But I want us to begin by knowing the end of the story. So they began to celebrate. Conviction, lament, confession, they end in us being reconciled to the Father who welcomes us home and celebrates over us. And as if, we, if we go through today and just the weight of it all feels a little bit heavy, I want to urge you to imagine yourself as the prodigal son, stumbling home, preparing yourself for retribution, and instead, to your utter amazement, being embraced and welcomed, being hugged and kissed and restored because that's where we're headed. We just need to spend a little time with the pigs first. We have some work to do. So let's jump in. We don't know exactly what was going on in the life of the prodigal son that led him to make the choices that he did. We don't get to know that part of the story, but being human ourselves, we know that none of us make choices in a vacuum. There must have been some unresolved pain or hurt or anger or disappointment in his life that motivated him to cause the pain that he did. Ronald Rollheiser says it like this, any pain or tension that we do not transform, we will transmit. I'm going to say it again just for me. Any pain or tension that we do not transform, we will transmit. Which begs the question... What pain or tension is untransformed in my life? And how is that being transmitted to the people around me? Some of you know my daughter, Ember. She's sick. She likes to dance over here on the carpet. Um, She's very insightful and intuitive for her age. She has this uncanny way of reading people and situations and calling it out, I will add. Uh, And there was one night in our home... uh, in bedtime, we, uh, there was considerable tension, I'm going to say that. Um, John and I were exasperated, and in our exhaustion, we were not doing a very good job of managing our own emotions. Any parents in the room? Am I the only one who does that? Okay, well, we were getting very frustrated with our kids. Now, John, at some point after the kids were in bed, he went in and apologized to Ember, who was still awake, for being so frustrated with her. And then sometime later, she called for me to go in. (laughs) And she said these words, Mommy, 
Daddy gets frustrated quite a lot, but he always apologizes. And I've noticed <laughs> that even though you don't get frustrated as much, you never apologize when you do. That's what I live with, guys. God is forming me the most through my children, let me tell you that. Out of the mouths of babes, shall we say. And in that moment, through a six-year-old child, the Holy Spirit brought so much conviction to me. Because remember, reconciliation is administered by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is the revealer of truth. And so I was forced to ask myself some difficult questions. Why was it hard for me to apologize to my kids? Why was it difficult for me to admit that I was wrong? And what was underneath this pride and this self-righteousness? And this conversation led to some serious soul-searching, and what I discovered underneath those questions was shame. So much of my narrative growing up was that love was something that I needed to earn or hold on to by being perfect. And even in my 40s, I was being forced to recognize through a conversation with a young child that it was difficult for me to admit my imperfections because maybe if I wasn't perfect, then I also wasn't lovable. I needed to do some deep soul work and invite God to bring healing to my story, to transform those false narratives so that I could admit to being imperfect, so that I could stop transmitting this unhealthy behavior on those around me who were continuing to be hurt by my untransformed childhood brokenness. Maybe this week you've been angry at your spouse or your child or your roommate or the stranger who cut in line in front of you. Maybe you've hurt them with your words, your actions, your passive-aggressive behavior, even your silent withholding or withdrawal. Can you look under the hood and see what is causing that? Is it fear? Is it shame? Maybe for you, anger doesn't really feel like much of an issue. Maybe it's the way that you speak about people when other people are around you and you know that that other person isn't listening. Why do we need to put others down to bolster our own egos? What are the lies we have believed or the false narratives we've been living with and how are they leaking out of us? So much of the hurt that we inflict on others is actually tied up in our own pain, our own loss of identity. I am angry at myself, therefore I have to be angry at you. I criticize myself, therefore I have to criticize you. I hate myself, therefore I have to act in hate towards you. But whatever we don't invite God to transform will be transmitted in the form of harmful sin patterns and behaviors. And I think there's probably lots of ways that we respond to our sin and brokenness. I want to name two in particular. I've already alluded to the first. They are shame and blame. We see this really clearly in Genesis 3, right at the beginning of the biblical narrative when the perfection of Eden is tainted by the fall. After Adam and Eve tasted the fruit that they've been told not to eat, we read that their eyes were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They hid from God among the trees in the garden. So when we sin, our human instinct is to hide. Why? Well, they felt shame for the first time. 
and that shame caused them to be fearful and to want to cover themselves and hide from God and from each other. Then God calls out to them, where are you? And Adam responds, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. I hear a variation of this line in my home several times a week when it all goes very quiet and I know that something's up. (laughs) Ember, Livy, where are you? What are you up to? And sometimes I'll find one like sneaking, you know, a towel from the kitchen behind their back into their room to to mop up a a large spill of water that they were told not to bring into their bedroom. And they want to cover up and hide their mistake so that I'm not mad. And they're trying to take care of the problem themselves. Their human instinct is to hide, to cover up. But we don't just hide, we also blame. God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she, she gave me, she gave me the fruit and told me and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what's this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the serpent. Ember and Livy, who told you you could bring water into your bedroom unsupervised? Inevitably, Ember will say, Livy said it was okay. <laughs> and Livy will say, Ember told me to do it. And then they will argue for the next five minutes about whose fault it was. When confronted by our sin, our instinct is to avoid taking responsibility by blaming someone else as our scapegoat. And in case we go thinking this is just kids, it's not. When Ember told me that I never apologized, my instinct was to think, why should I apologize for being irritated when you were the one who irritated me in the first place? (laughs) But Jesus said that our choices and our actions flow from our heart who we are at our core, our character, whatever happens externally has its source internally. In Matthew 15, when the Pharisees are questioning Jesus about external things, Jesus responds by saying, the things that come out of a person's mouth come from their heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, idolatry, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. The Pharisees worked so hard at making sure they looked good externally. But Jesus said they were like whitewashed tombs. They were clean on the outside, but filthy on the inside. They may have looked okay from the outside, but what was going on in their hearts was wreaking havoc on those around them because they didn't know any alternative to hiding and blaming. So what is the alternative? It's confession. Our teachings text said the lion will eat straw like the ox. The lion has to learn to find alternative sustenance instead of preying on the weak. And when I was spending time on this passage, maybe last month, I was reflecting on this line in particular, and the phrase that kept coming to me was eating humble pie. Is that a, is that a phrase that you use here? I always have to check. 12 years in, and I'm like, I don't know, maybe I'll say something that's very Irish, and nobody will know what I'm talking about. Okay, so... The lion is the king of the jungle, the top of the food chain. Lions eat big animals. This picture of a lion not even eating smaller meat but eating hay is a very important picture. To eat humble pie is to admit that one was wrong. And like in my story of Ember, I had to humble myself. No longer a strong adult against a weak child. I had to recognize her as an equal, our shared humanity. And I had to admit my wrong and eat straw, eat humble pie. 
I'm sure we're all familiar with King David. He was the writer of most of the Psalms. Psalms. Um, he was a good king, uh, named in scripture as a man after God's own heart. But when we look at his life, I got to say there's not a great rap sheet. You know, there's adultery, lying, deception, murder. So what was it about this man that meant he could still be called a man after God's own heart? I believe it is the power of lament and confession. I want us to look for a second at 2 Samuel chapter 12. David at this point has committed adultery with Bathsheba, who was married to Uriah, one of David's favorite generals. David then sent Uriah off to the first line of battle, knowing full well that he would be killed, and therefore David's own sin would be covered up, and he'd be free to have Bathsheba entirely for himself. The prophet Nathan then confronts David by telling him a story that goes like this. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Interesting use of the lamb metaphor once again. Now, when David heard this story, it says that he burned with anger against the rich man. And he said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then the prophet responds, you are the man. Another mic drop moment. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, your your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. I think David's reaction to the rich man in the story is biblical evidence for the fact that usually what angers us most in the behavior of others is actually what angers us most about ourselves. Nathan's words bring about what? Conviction. The Spirit of God through the prophet causes David to see the reality of the brokenness and that conviction gives way to confession. He has to name the wrong. I have sinned against the Lord. Similar to the prodigal son, actually. I have sinned against heaven and against you, is what the prodigal son said. Both upon conviction, recognize that when we sin against our brothers and sisters, causing hurt or harm, devaluing, defaming, defacing them, we're not only sinning against that individual, but against the one who created them and loves them. Now, it's important to point out that conviction doesn't automatically lead us to repent. It is possible that we can just stay stuck in that that cycle of blaming and hiding. But the invitation is towards lament and confession, allowing the pain of our wrongs to affect us, to express sorrow for the wrongs we have committed. When our sin is named and our brokenness is exposed for what it is and brought into the light, all blame kind of evaporates and we're forced to look our failure straight in the eye and take full responsibility for the pain that we have caused. You know, as New Yorkers, we hear that kind of announcement. If you see something, say something. It's the same when it comes to conviction of sin, actually. When we see it, when it's brought to our attention, we have to say it. 
That is confession. Confession means to declare the truth of a situation, action, or belief. We name the wrong we've done. This is what I did. This is what I said. This is what I have believed. This is how I hurt you. And I am sorry. Dan Siegel is a neuroscientist who writes great books on parenting for any parents in the room. And one of the phrases that he uses in terms of de-escalating toddler tantrums is name it to tame it. And of course, he's talking about the ways that we need to validate the emotions of young children before trying to reason with them. He doesn't always give us a manual of how we do that in the actual moment, real time. But I think this phrase is really relevant to us here. We have to name it to tame it. Until we name our sin, it will continue to wreak havoc in our lives. When we keep our sin, our mistakes, and our failures hidden, they continue to hold tremendous power and influence over our interior life, which in turn continues to shape our external behaviors. It's a bit like burying a car battery and then planting a pretty garden on top of it. You know, people might come and say, oh, what a beautiful garden, what beautiful flowers, but eventually, whatever we bury is gonna reveal itself. It's gonna grow, we're gonna see it, it will be exposed, it comes to the surface. And so we name it and we also lament. Last week, Patrick used the same word, lament, to describe lamb work, how we grieve and express anger at the wrongs committed to us. But part of lion work is grieving for the wrongs that we have done. Lament is the holistic human response to the pain and trauma we have wrought and received. That is why it is both lamb work and lion work. J.R. Briggs defines lament like this, a prayer of persuasion employed to have God act on behalf of people suffering. And that includes those who are suffering through our mistakes and the suffering we've caused to ourselves as a result of those mistakes. So what do I need to lament in my interior world? How has that leaked out and caused suffering to those in its wake? And how am I grieving the hurt that I've caused? How am I grieving my own internal brokenness and suffering, the history that has led me to those actions? Psalm 51 was the psalm that David wrote in response to the conviction brought about by the words of the prophet Nathan, and it's filled with confession and lament. David is grieved by the reality of his brokenness and how it has negatively impacted his life with God and irreparably damaged those around him. He admits his complicity with a spirit of genuine repentance and humility. His lament becomes a catalytic process towards forgiveness and healing. Listen to some of these words. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Create in me a pure heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Now, knowing what we now know about David's actions, this term of affection, a man after God's own heart, was nothing to do with perfect behavior and everything to do with his response to his sin and his failures. 
Confession is the spiritual discipline that allows us to enter into the grace and mercy of God in such a way that we experience forgiveness and also experience healing for the sins and sorrows of the past. Both forgiveness and healing are involved in confession. Forgiveness positions us in a right relationship with God. Healing frees us from the pain of our past upon our present. And confession is both private and communal. We confess to God and we confess to each other. David confessed to God and also to the prophet Nathan. When people journey through a 12-step program like AA, the fifth step is confession. We admit to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. First, in confessing to God, what may be obvious but I think is important to point out is that though we try really hard to hide our sin, it's never actually hidden from God. You know, in Genesis 3 in the garden, when when God said, Adam and Eve, where are you? It, It isn't because he didn't know. I love this by Frederick Bruckner. To confess your sins to God is not to tell God anything God doesn't already know. Until you confess them, however, they are the abyss between you. When you confess them, they become the Golden Gate Bridge. Not only does David confess in the negative, I have sinned, He also confesses in the affirmative, God is gracious and merciful. In fact, if you look at any lament in scripture, bar one, they all have several things in common. There is the expression of emotion, usually anger and sadness. There is petition, asking God for something. And there is affirming trust in God. David's lament was not just focused on the pain and the problem in front of him. He wasn't just praying for himself. It also spoke of promise. He affirmed and confessed the character of God, the unfeeling love and compassion of God. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Pete Gregg says this, our greatest need and God's greatest gift are the same thing, forgiveness of sins. Scripture says that when we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Eugene Peterson has this to say about forgiveness. God does not deal with sin by ridding our lives of it as if it were a germ or mice in the attic. God does not deal with sin by amputation as if it were a gangrenous leg leaving us crippled, holiness as a crutch. God deals with sin by forgiving us. And when he forgives us, there is more of us, not less. So when we we confess to God, But scripture also invites us to confess to one another. Confession to God, I believe, is primarily about forgiveness and cleansing. But there is another dynamic at play in confession, and that is healing. James 5.16 says this, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Confession is not supposed to be an isolated process. We get so squirmy about it. The idea of communal confession, maybe we're okay with a kind of generic confession liturgy where we all say it at the same time, but don't ask me to say out loud to anyone else any specific sins I've committed this week. Can't we just confess to God? Isn't that enough? Well, well, yes, it is. We confess and God is faithful and just to forgive us. But we miss out on something crucial when we feel to confess to a brother or sister. We miss out on the gift of tangible acceptance 
The gift of having someone reflect back to us God's compassion and mercy. The gift of knowing that even with all of our sin exposed, even when people know the worst of us, the ugliest corners of who we are, we are still loved and lovable. I had a a friend who had a, a very big secret from her boyfriend. And her boyfriend became her fiance. And they were about to get married and she still hadn't told him. And I urged her to bring it into the light, not just because I thought he deserved to know, but also because I feared that she would go through her whole married life, always wondering if he would actually really love her if he knew the whole story. That she would live for the next 40 plus years of her life, never fully trusting that he loved all of her. Ronald Rollheiser argues that even in marriage, what we want most is a confessor, someone before whom we can be our most honest and vulnerable self. Confessing to each other might look like confessing directly to the person we have wronged. Pete Gregg argues that we cannot be more reconciled with God than we are with our neighbor. 1 John 4, 20 said, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. Jesus believed in this so much that he said, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Confession came before worship. As part of our response, we will approach the table together and celebrate communion. And this is a place where we celebrate not only reconciliation with Christ, but also reconciliation with one another. When I was doing some digging into our teaching text, I noticed a strong connection um, between Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 65. Our teaching text says, the wolf will live with the lamb and the lion will eat straw like the ox. In Isaiah 65, it says, the wolf and the lamb will feed together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. And I was struck by these words, live and feed. And I wanted to know what the distinction was. The word here for live is gur, which means to dwell, to abide. It speaks of hospitality, welcoming the stranger. The word feed here is ra, which means to pasture and graze and tend. But it also means to be a friend, to be a companion to. And interestingly, this word companion literally means to share bread with. People who break bread together should share life together. And part of sharing life as companions is confession and forgiveness. And perhaps during this teaching series, you might have a moment where you're approaching this table and you have a moment where a memory comes to mind or the Holy Spirit is bringing you to a place of conviction. And the most appropriate response might be to leave the line. Go send that text. Go make that call. Go have that conversation and return to the line and go celebrate the gift of reconciliation. Sometimes confessing to each other might look like simply naming our sin before a brother or sister who we trust and asking them to pray for us that we might be healed, as scripture says. Communal confession is not just something we do because it sounds nice. It's because healing and freedom is part of it. It's actually a gift to the church. This counterformational practice is sadly lacking a lot of the time. We don't like any mention of sin. It's deeply unpopular. And yet perhaps confession is what we most need. Jesus was entirely sinless 
and had no need of confession, and yet he modeled humility and vulnerability in undergoing a baptism of repentance. We confess to one another, not because it is necessary for God's forgiveness, but because confession can often make our sin and brokenness more real to us. This creates the intention to live more fully into the healing that Christ has made possible for us. And our community, in turn, helps to provide the means by which we can live into our ongoing transformation through accountability and support, people asking, how's that going? It fosters the virtue of vulnerability and interdependence with everyone on level ground. I love this line from Karl Barth. When we confess our virtues, we are competitors. When we confess our sins, we are brothers and sisters. We live in a culture where everything is about success, upward mobility, keeping up appearances, and yet I just don't think we will ever be fully formed in Christ until we can learn to admit our weaknesses and name our failures. We cannot have a life that is completely without sin, the side of eternity, but we can choose to have a life without secrets, and that is the gift of confession. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. And by way of responding today, I'm going to invite us to engage in a couple of things. The first is searching. And this is the Spirit's work at our invitation. And naming, which is our work at the Spirit's invitation. We're going to spend some time in silence together and we're going to invite the Holy Spirit to search us. And then as the Holy Spirit brings conviction and illuminates anything to us, we are going to name those and lament. We will name privately before God and receive his forgiveness. And there's also the invitation to confess to each other and receive healing. And in between, of course, there is lament, grieving before God, any hurt that we have caused, having a broken and contrite heart before God. We can do some digging. God, what's at the root of this behavior? What's going on? underneath the hood. Come and bring healing to that. I mean, to use a very New York analogy, you know, if you have a rat problem, you can, you can deal with the rats. But if you don't deal with why the rats are coming, they're just going to come back. And we can spend our life dealing with symptoms and never actually get to the root cause. I say this all the time. Dr. Larry Crabb says, God meets us where we are, not where we pretend to be or wish we were. God's truth does not set free a pretending or hiding heart. So today, I think the invitation is for us to come out of hiding and open our eyes and see that everyone else is doing the same thing because we all need to learn to eat straw like the ox. We're invited to lay down our shame, set aside our blame. Would you stand with me? I'm going to acknowledge, I know that we're a little bit over time, but I want to encourage you to just kind of stay with this, stay with this work, and don't rush out prematurely. In fact, um, if this is physically possible for you, um, I'm going to invite us all to kneel, actually. And if you can't kneel, that's okay. You can sit, but let's put our bodies into a posture of humility. And 
yeah, band, I want to encourage you just to do this with us because we, we're going to do this in silence. We don't, we don't need any music right now. <clears throat> Scripture says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. And we're just going to spend a few minutes in silence. This is simply between you and God. Take a moment and ask the Holy Spirit, give the Holy Spirit permission to search your heart and mind for where sin has been active and hiding in your life this week. Let the Spirit bring you to a place of conviction and even lament. So come, Holy Spirit, search our hearts. And now in the silence, I want to invite us to confess privately before God. Just imagine yourself as the prodigal son. What is the speech that you're rehearsing on the way home? Whatever that sounds like. It probably involves these four things. Here's what I did. Here's who I hurt. I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? So picture the sight of your heavenly father running undignified towards you to scoop you up and embrace you with love and compassion. We're going to spend a few more minutes in silence together, and this is our private confession. There are some words of corporate confession that are going to be on the screen behind me. Would you open your eyes and could we join in saying these words together? Almighty God, who freely pardons all who repent and turn to him, now fulfill in every contrite heart the promise of redeeming grace 
forgiving all our sins and cleansing us from all unrighteousness through the perfect sacrifice of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Would you stand with me? Scripture says, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Um, We're going to worship together. And as we worship, I'm going to extend that final invitation to naming. And that is the courageous naming with another person. And the prayer team, I want to invite you just to come and be on the prayer rugs and available to welcome people. If there's anyone who wants to name something with you and receive prayer, but you can also do that with the person standing next to you or, or a friend in the room. If there's someone that you could just take a moment and say, I, I'm, I know that I'm forgiven, but I want to name this to you because I recognize that it's actually part of my healing. And you can pray for one another or you can very simply just say, Um, these simple words, go in peace, Christ has set you free to each other. Let's not interrupt people. Let's not try to justify why they did the thing they did, but just hold it, just hold it. And you can just say, go in peace, Christ has set you free. And I want to encourage you to do that part before you come to the table. The table is also going to be open. I'm going to invite the communion servers to come forward. There will be two at the front to serve anyone who's in the center. Um, There will be a communion server here to serve those of you on this side and also those who are gluten-free can come to this side. And there will be a server here for everyone on this side of me. And as I said earlier, this table is not just about reconciliation with Christ. We celebrate through the bread and the cup, the broken body of Jesus, the blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. We celebrate all that Jesus has done for us to make way for us to step into forgiveness forgiveness and healing and reconciliation but it's also about reconciliation with each other and so I want to encourage you to use the table today as a way to celebrate reconciliation with one another and with God the gifts of God for the people of God the table will be open as part of our response but as I said let's not let's not rush to it if you've got some work to do in confessing to one another we're going to do that first But as the band leaves us in worship, let's use this time to confess, to lament, and finally to celebrate.